Hello, my name is Elizabeth, I'm a first year, and we're going to be reading the Bible together. We're going to be reading Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 8. If you do not have a Bible, you can raise your hand and we'll bring you one. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture. They will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. Thanks, Elizabeth. Welcome back. It's uh, nice to see you all here, week seven after mid-sem break. We talked to a bunch of you. It seems like you're more tired now than you were a week ago. I'm not sure what happened, but mismanagement was probably a part of it. So... um, We'll see how we go. Um, To start off, I actually want to draw our attention to another piece of mismanagement, but it seems like it's much more of a global issue than just how we've treated our mid-sems. I think that we're currently in a world leadership crisis. If you don't believe me, I've got two words for you, Donald Trump. I think this man has single-handedly almost started a civil war and undermined the cause of democracy in our world, at least in the Western world, um, for a very long time to come. It wouldn't surprise me, actually, if, that you know, as they write the history books in, in centuries to come, they will point to his kind of impeachment and, and the fact that he didn't win the election as the moment where democracy and confidence in democracy started to crumble. It seems like everywhere we look in our world, leadership is failing us. Because it's not just American politics, it's Australian politics. Uh, I don't know whether you guys were kind of paying attention back in late primary school, early high school, but there is a period in Australian history where people are now unable to remember the prime ministers of our country because they changed so quickly. Like it went, I don't even remember their names, like Kevin Rudd to Julia to, to Rudd, and then Turnbull comes in at some point, and Tony, I'm pretty sure there's a play school presenter in at some point as well. And, and the whole thing just kind of crumbled as people were stabbing each other in the back, not filling out their terms. And what it's done, I think, is it's created for us in Australia a whole bunch of confusion and uncertainty and distrust of our politicians. The joke was always that we couldn't trust politicians, but now so much more. And it's not just on the national stage either. It was even at UWA. Uh, For those of you who are upper years, you would have seen this. Um, A couple of years ago, there was this giant leadership spill uh, and one of the parties split because of rampant corruption and virtually everybody left that party and formed a new party and left this one as a shell. But all the corruption sort of followed them and now they've got this party and there's corruption going on there as well. And the whole thing is just a bit of a mess. Our leaders are failing us. And if you think it's not just political, it's business as well. It's Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. 
Roger Isles and uh, in the Fox News Corporation, if you saw the movie Bombshell, you would have learned about that. Our leaders are failing us. But it keeps getting worse because it's not just out there, it's closer to home. It's not just the secular leaders, it's our religious ones as well. I watched a movie recently called Spotlight, which is basically about the Boston Globe's expose of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church in Boston. Uh, And that is rampant, not just in the Catholic Church, but it seems in denominations everywhere. Uh, If it's not that, then it's financial greed. Uh, I've got uh, stories of prosperity gospel preachers basically sucking their congregations dry so they can fund their mansions. Uh, One of them actually has asked his congregation members to each give $300 so that together they could buy him a private jet for him to fly around and preach the gospel. The only thing that had merit in that, that he was up front at the beginning. He said, this is what we're giving money for. But it's ridiculous, isn't it? But we could keep going deeper and deeper and deeper because it's not just out there in different kind of Christian denominations. It's in our own tradition as well. Uh, About 10 years ago, I started to make a list, a list of all the evangelical Christian leaders, people who believed and taught the Bible, who had disqualified themselves from ministry. Now, as you look through the list, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Some of them aren't surprising. Sexual infidelity and abuse, uh, financial mismanagement and fraud. Lying and cover-ups, and in more recent times, and this is the reason I started making this list, bullying and domineering behaviour. And as I continue to maintain that list, the rate with which I add to it only increases. And so it seems that everywhere we look, we are seeing the failure of leadership. And that is deeply concerning, isn't it? Because when we think about it, our well-being, both as individuals... And as a society depends on our leaders. I think intuitively we know that, right? We know that anarchy isn't the solution to our problems. We need people to lead and in a way that benefits those around them. But if getting rid of leadership isn't the problem and everywhere we look leadership is failing us, then what is the solution? What is it? Well, when we get to the book of Jeremiah and in today's chapters, chapter 21 to 24... We see that Judah is experiencing a leadership crisis as well. In fact, we've seen it as early as chapter 2, verse 8, where Jeremiah cries out, The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. You see, God's leaders had rebelled against him and they had led God's people into sin. And this is actually one of the key reasons the book of Jeremiah exists. The leaders had taken the nation of Judah and caused them to commit sin and in doing so invoked the judgment of God. And it could drill down. It was all because of the failure of its leaders. And so today, as we look at this part of Jeremiah, what we're going to see is the word of God promised judgment on these corrupt leaders. But it'll do so in a way that when it falls upon them, something else rises up from the ashes that solves not just Judah's leadership crisis, but our leadership crisis as well. But to get there, we need to understand where we are in the book. So let's have a look at where we are in the book of Jeremiah. I've got some great news for you today. This is the first time in the book of Jeremiah we actually get dates. So we actually chronologically for the first time actually know where we are. We're not guesstimating anymore. But here's the bad news. In terms of chronology, it's all over the shop. 
So in chapter 21, we kind of start in Zedekiah's reign right at the end of, of the nation of Judah. But then we bounce back to halfway through Jehoiakim's reign. And then we kind of bounce through and back again to the, the king that was before him. And then we kind of bounce forward back to when Zedekiah kind of became king. And then we end up back to where Jerusalem is destroyed. So we are all over the shop. Now, but one of the things you can see there that is in terms of the spread, we're at the second half of Jeremiah's ministry. And the reason that that spread is the way that it is, is because as we read through these chapters, chapter 21 through to 24, we see that this is a collection of all of the times that Jeremiah has addressed the kings of Judah. In other words, they're arranged not chronologically, but thematically. And that tips us up to what's happening in the book. Because if you remember, the word of God has been dismantling the nation of Judah. It's been attacking all of their treasured institutions taking away all of their sources of confidence so that they will know that the judgment of God is coming and they can't escape. And so far, we've seen the word dismantle the temple, the covenant, Judah's privilege of election. And now today, we see very clearly, thematically, that the word of God will dismantle the Davidic kingship. And so rather than jump around and kind of get ourselves confused, what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on eight verses in this section, the verses that we just had read to us, chapter 23, 1 to 8, because I think it in essence captures what the word of God says to the leaders of Judah. And so with that in mind, uh, let's ask what it is that the word of God says. Uh, Let's have a look at verses 1 to 2 in Jeremiah chapter 23. The word of God says this. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. Now, notice here that Jeremiah calls Judah's leaders shepherds. And throughout the book of Jeremiah, this is his term for the nation's political leaders. So we have primarily in mind Judah's king, but it also kind of has involved in it all of the other kind of political officials that are attached to the king. Uh, And that distinction is important for us because as we kind of drill down into how the nation of Judah is governed, we actually find out that there are different types of leaders. In fact, there are at least three. Uh, So here is that verse that we looked at just before again, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8. And we see here that Judah isn't just led by shepherds, but by priests and by prophets as well. And these three officers, the prophets, the priests and the shepherds, they sort of form like a, a leadership trinity of sorts that together are responsible for the prosperity of the nation. Not just its material prosperity, but its spiritual prosperity. And as we read through the scriptures, the Old Testament, and in particular the, the, the book of Jeremiah, we see that though they have the same goal for the people of God, they all have different functions. And you get a feel for it actually in this verse up on the screen. So, for example, the priests, they were responsible for the law of God. Now, they were the ones that needed to know it, to preserve it, to teach it to the people. The prophets, on the other hand, had a similar role, but it was slightly different. They were responsible for speaking the word of God. These were the the revelations that God would give particular people. And so by them, they would keep the nation on track. They'd call out sin where it was sin. They'd encourage righteousness where it was righteousness. And they'd do it all as they listened to God speak to them so that they might speak to the people. 
But the shepherds, the shepherds were responsible for the justice of God. Their job was to rule the people in righteousness. And so we see an example of that. And you can actually see this in your Bibles. If you turn over the page backwards to chapter 22, verse 3, chapter 22, verse 3, Jeremiah says to one of the kings of Judah, this is what the Lord says. Do what is right and just. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood. And the reason Jeremiah says that to the king is that the role of the shepherd was to care for the sheep. And the particular way that they did that was to ensure that the cause of righteousness prevailed. First of all, in their own lives as to how they lived. But then second of all, in the lives of those they ruled. And their role, it wasn't just judicial or just political. The leadership they provided was moral as well. And so that whole division of the kind of the sacred versus the secular that we see in modern politics. Well, it's just that it's it's modern. Because in a theocratic state like Judah, where it was ruled by God and the people he appointed, the political and the spiritual came together in the king. And so they didn't just need political savvy and, you know, make cool alliances and and, and know how to make laws and stuff. They needed godliness as well. Because if they didn't have that, they couldn't rule in righteousness. Because that was the role of the shepherd. Now, with that in mind, let's have a look at how Judah's shepherds are doing. Uh, Back to chapter 23, verse 1. What do we see? They've destroyed and scattered the flock. Uh, Verse 2, they've driven them away and not cared for them. In other words, they have failed to rule in righteousness. Instead of feeding the sheep, they have fed themselves on the sheep. And to understand the gravity of this statement, we need to appreciate what has happened in the lead up to it. Because this isn't just like, you know, God kind of summarizing what's going on. These verses come at the end of an extended argument that began all the way here over at chapter 21 and worked its way through. And what Jeremiah and the word of God have been doing since chapter 21 is systematically demonstrating that every king of Judah since Josiah is corrupt. Now, do you remember Josiah? Do you remember that timeline? We've got it there on your outlines. He's the first king in this kind of swathe of kings that we've been looking at in Jeremiah's time. And he is the last good king of Judah. And he's described in this section very briefly. uh, And we see it here up on the screen uh, under the the verdict column. Uh, We're told that Josiah did justice and righteousness and that he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Josiah was a good shepherd. But what Jeremiah does at this point in his scroll or his book is he starts an argument that demonstrates that every king that follows him isn't that. And so he begins by addressing the house of David in chapter 21, verse 11. You can turn there and have a look if you'd like. Uh, And the fact that he begins by addressing the house of David is significant. He's not talking to a particular king at this point. He's talking to the institution. So this isn't like a dear King Charles. This is a house of Windsor. Listen to me. And this is what he says. It's up here on the screen too. Verse 12. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. And so this becomes the ultimatum that God gives the house of David and also the standard by which he will judge each of the successors of Josiah as history progresses. 
So let's have a look at how they do. Uh, and this is where I have the confession to make. Again, you've got your outline uh, uh, there and the timeline on it. I've hidden two kings. And that's because they only ruled for three months and it was just a lot of information to take in. You didn't need to know about that. But here they are. Jehoahaz takes over when Josiah dies. He is a son of Josiah and he rules for three months. He does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see in chapter 22, verse 11 and 12, that he is exiled and significantly his line is ended. Now, he's replaced by Jehoiakim, also a son of Josiah. He rules for 11 years and he does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, Jeremiah has a lot to say about him in chapter 22. And you see it up there in the box, verse 13. He is accused of using his own people as slave labor to build his palace. Here is a man who feeds on the sheep. And so eventually he is deposed, captured, killed by Nebuchadnezzar in the first exile uh, there on your sheet um, in 597 BC. Uh, and, And his son, Jehoiachin, is then made king. He rules for three months. He's got a couple of other names there you can see up on the screen. And then he's taken into exile in Babylon. In chapter 22, verse 30, God declares that no one of his line will sit on the throne of David. So he's exiled, his line is ended. This is not looking good for the kings of Judah, is it? But there's one more, maybe we've got hope here, because Jehoiachin is replaced by Zedekiah, yet another son of Josiah. This guy had a lot of sons floating around the place, didn't he? He's like, oh, here, here, have all these options for kings. Now, Zedekiah's name means um, the righteousness of the Lord. So hopefully we'll see some good come out of this. And he reigns for 11 years, but he does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar returns again. This time he destroys Jerusalem and he takes Zedekiah into exile, but not before killing all of his sons before his eyes. And so his line is ended. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 22, we are confronted by one single important question. Will there ever be a son of David, a king from the house of David, who rules in righteousness? And the reason this is so significant is because God had made a promise to David that at one point in history, a descendant of David would one day ascend the throne and defeat Judah's enemies and rule in righteousness, not just over them, but over the whole world. We're talking the end of history. We're talking world peace and justice. That was the play. That was the hope. And it would be the foundation of not just the Jewish religion, but actually the Christian religion as well. And so as we enter chapter 23, we are concerned and confronted with a leadership crisis because the sheep are scattered, the shepherds are corrupt, and we've run out of sons of David. So what is it that God says in response to this? Well, he offers the word of judgment, but he also offers a word of hope. He gives us a solution and he gives it to us in the form of two promises. The first promise we see in verses three to four of chapter 23, and we're told that God promises to gather his sheep. Have a read from verse three. God promises to gather his sheep. He says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I'll bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I'll place shepherds over them who will tend to them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Take a moment to imagine for a second the impact those words would have on you if you were in exile. 
The hammer has fallen. God's judgment has happened. And now you're a captive in a foreign country. Everything about you, your home, your possessions, possibly even some of your family members, your identity, it has been stripped from you. You're picking your wounds in a foreign land, not knowing what the future holds. And God turns up in the person of Jeremiah and he says, I have not forgotten you. And I myself will bring you back. If you skim your eyes down to verse 7 of our passage today, we're told that that bringing back the return from exile will be so momentous that the people of God will no longer say, surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. That was their paradigm. That was the main redemption point of their history. But instead, they'll now say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. It's a massive promise. But that promise comes with a second one. It just gets better and better. The second promise is in verses 5 to 6. He promises to give Judah a shepherd. Not like the shepherds he promised in verses 4, but a shepherd that's a Davidic king who will rule in righteousness. Have a look at verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous saviour. Literally, the Lord is our righteousness. Now, remember what Zedekiah's name means. Zedekiah's name meant the righteousness of the Lord. And it's supposed to see the comparison here. Zedekiah had righteousness as a name, but he sucked. But here is a king whose name is the Lord is our righteousness. And he will live up to his name and his calling like none of the other kings before him. And what God says to the people in exile is that the people of Judah have not been abandoned. In the midst of their leadership crisis, they sit in exile in Babylon. I'll bring you back and I will give you a shepherd who was supposed to do the job that everyone else failed to do. And it changes for the exile the question. It's no longer has the Davidic kingship failed. It's actually more hopeful now. It's when will it succeed? And to answer that question, we then need to look at the future and the history of what happens to Judah. And the thing to understand and the the wrinkle in the system is that there isn't just one fulfilment of this promise. There's two. So let's have a look at the first fulfilment, the initial fulfilment. Uh, If we keep skimming through Jeremiah, and we won't do it now, but if you go to chapter 25, chapter 29, Jeremiah tells the exiles how long they'll have to wait. And it's not actually that long. He says it's 70 years. That's all it is. 70 years and God will bring you back. And the thing is, it happens. So at the end of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, a history book in the Old Testament, we see that after 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, God moves in the heart of Cyrus to send the flock of God back to their land. And when he returns, he gives them shepherds, Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. And he gives them a whole bunch of people to lead them. But the, another person comes along with them as well, a person called Zerubbabel. He's a man descended from David, the grandson of Jehoiachin, and he becomes the governor of Judah. So that's the initial fulfillment. But can you see the problem? doesn't really sound like Jeremiah 23 at all, does it? I mean, the pieces are there. They're back in the land. They've got like a Davidic kind of person floating around. But this is not the momentous and triumphant return from exile that we were led to believe 
in chapter 23, verse 7 and 8. You see, the country remains under foreign rule, and slowly over time the shepherds become corrupt, and significantly the Davidic kingship is never restored. A governor is not a king, and that king, that governor, does not rule over much. And so it pushes us to keep looking for the time when God's promises will ultimately be fulfilled. And that leads us to the second fulfilment, the ultimate fulfilment. And it comes about at a certain point in Israel's history when a man called Jesus comes on the scene. Because he too is a descendant from David and he calls himself a shepherd. Have a look at John chapter 10. He says of himself, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. And we see him do this. In fact, we see him do this at a very interesting part of his life. It's at the time where he is crowned as king. Do you guys remember when Jesus is crowned as king? It's at his crucifixion. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mock him as king, not knowing that he truly was the king. But instead of kind of like busting their chops and saving his own bacon, he lets them kill him so that he might lay down his life for the sheep. And once we have that locked in place, it helps us understand the true return from exile that Jeremiah is talking about. Because have a look at John chapter 10 again, uh, where Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd. But this time in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. You see, the reason for the gathering of the flock being more momentous than the Exodus is because God, through his king Jesus, is gathering more than just the people of Judah and gathering more than just the people of Judah to a physical land. He is gathering everyone, not just from physical captivity, but from a captivity of sin and death that leads to the judgment of God. One that holds people in an exile far worse than Babylon. And this is God's solution to the leadership crisis. Notice how he does it. It's not by updating systems and structures. It's not by introducing better training or screening. His solution to the crisis is to provide a leader who loves and cares for his sheep. Because here is a king who doesn't just feed off the sheep, but feeds the sheep with his own body, that they might prosper, not just materially, but spiritually, not just in this life, but in the next. And that has, I think, for us some implications. I've got two here. The first is that we are therefore to entrust ourselves to the care of God's shepherd. I don't know how much, we've got a bit of time so we can kind of float around in this. I've got a couple of stories from you, all of them true, all of them from the Gospels uh, accounts of Jesus. Two of them actually from Mark's Gospel, and I wanted them to be from Mark's Gospel just in case you're reading Mark Uncover with a friend or with a classmate. So you know that these stories exist and you can point your friends to them because this is the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. Here's the first story. This story comes from Mark chapter 10. Uh, at this point, Jesus is getting a heck of a lot of popularity. People are gathering around him all the time. He's an important guy. And some people bring some children to him. Now, children are annoying at the best of times. But if you go back 2,000 years ago, children were non-entities. They didn't have rights. No one cared about them. They were to be silent and just left off in the corner. And the disciples know this and they just go, oh, Jesus, we're not going to let him deal with that. Guys, just go home. We don't want the children. Jesus, even though he's getting all this detention and stuff, hears it, comes in. He says, what are you doing? These are the most important people and I want to see them. And he brings them in and he gathers them to himself. That's the first story. The second story is in Mark chapter 9, a chapter earlier. Jesus has been up in the mountain with a couple of his friends. Maybe they're having a bit of a camp or whatever. And he comes back down and he discovers that his disciples are having a problem. 
They have a little boy. He's possessed by a demon, unclean spirit, and they can't remove the demon. And Jesus, after kind of trying to work out what it is, works out what's happening, and he takes this child who's been thrown into the fire, who's, who's been tried to be killed by this demon who possesses him, and he casts the spirit out. He stops, he uses his power to free a boy in suffering and death. Third story, and I think this is the most significant one for today. This is in Luke, it's in chapter 7. A prostitute comes while he's at dinner with some very fancy people. It's in Chapier or whatever it is that's fancy for you. And she walks in, woman of the streets, and she starts to anoint Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and wipe it with her hair. It's disgusting. Like that is just the grossest thing in the world, isn't it? And everybody in the room thinks that that's the case. And they say, Jesus, what are you doing? If you knew where she was from, you would not be letting her do that. This is just not what we do here. And Jesus turned around and said to them, well, what are you thinking? This woman has understood her sin. She has come to me. I accept her. How could you think that way? Now, you tell me that that's not a shepherd that you want to care for you. Yeah. Whether you're marginalised, whether you're oppressed, whether you're guilty of great sin, here is a leader who sees past it all to you. He will not burn you if you give him a chance. He will gather you to himself and never let you go. He is completely trustworthy, completely safe. And I'll tell you one thing, he will never ask you to buy him a private jet. (laughs) Here is a shepherd that you want to take care of you. Here is a shepherd that you could entrust your soul to. And remember, all of that stuff that I just told you, those three wonderful stories, those are just things he did on earth. They're the warm-up act for what he did on the cross where he laid down his life for you and me, that we might become a part of his flock and dwell with him forever when he comes into his kingdom and he rules in righteousness and new creation where there's no more pain or corruption or anything else that we've seen in the time of Judah. So that's the first implication. Entrust yourself to the care of God's shepherd. If you haven't, if you knew, if you kind of just walked in because you've got a free sausage, you thought, oh yeah, I'll come to the talk. Maybe this is the time. Maybe it's time to think about who is the leader that I can trust. It is not Donald Trump. We have some good politicians in this country, but it is not those politicians. It is Jesus. And if you already have, if you have found the grace and goodness and the righteousness of that shepherd, then can I encourage you, don't turn away. Continue to entrust your soul to his care. The Christian life is hard. Your shepherd will ask you to do things that perhaps you don't want to do, but you can trust him because he loves you and has demonstrated it in the way that he has lived. Nowhere else you go will you get a better deal. The only place, the most wonderful place that you can be is entrusted in the care of God's shepherd. So that's the first implication. The second implication is this. Don't confuse the shepherds for the shepherd. See, I think that if Jesus is the great and true shepherd that God promises in Jeremiah chapter 23, it is tempting to think that we don't need any other leader. We know they're going to fail us, right? And if God has given us somebody who's never going to fail us, then why do we even bother with them? But of course, if you've read your Bibles, you know that that isn't what God does. That's not the picture he gives us. He keeps the structure of human leadership. He keeps appointing people to lead his people on earth. You see, Jesus isn't the only one who takes up the language of shepherd in the New Testament. It's used to describe church leaders as well. You see it in particular in 1 Peter chapter 5. But even though the structure stays the same, 
the coming of the great shepherd changes the way that we view it. Uh, have a look, um, I think, is we look to our leaders. And when we look to our leaders, we, we don't look to our leaders anymore to save us, but to point to the one who can. And that's why, if you want a good definition of leadership, the only good definition of leadership there is, it's leadership that points to the great shepherd, King Jesus. It's leadership that understands that we are not at the apex of the pyramid and that their role as leaders is to, by the things that they say, by the things that they teach, by the way that they live, to point to the one who does rule in righteousness, to point to the one who does save and care for and secure his people. In fact, it's why in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. He's a young leader and this is the advice he gives him. Because those are the two things that will characterise good leadership. Teaches the right things about Jesus and he lives as an example of Jesus. And I want you to notice the rest of that verse. What happens when he does those two things? He will save both himself and importantly, his hearers. Not because he's the great shepherd... Not because he has salvific power, he's got none, but because he has led people and pointed people to the one who can. And if there's ever a time in history that Christians need to remember this, it's now. Because we have changed our definition of leadership, haven't we? When we ask somebody whether somebody, you know, you think that person's a good leader, these are the kinds of questions that we ask. Are they a good preacher? Are they dynamic and charismatic? Can they set a vision, grow a ministry, draw people around them? Are they quick-witted? Are they confident? Can they answer any question they get given? That's the type of leadership that we value, yeah? It is, right? This is, this is the things that we celebrate. These are the things that we look to on the internet, the people even in our own churches. That's our value system. And here's the news flash: You will not find a single one of those values as something that God says is something that he upholds and desires in his shepherds. He wants them to point to Jesus by word and by example. And if we don't view leadership in the same way, then what we do is at what we look at terminates at the little shepherd and we fail to see the big shepherd that stands over it. And what we do is we create a vicious cycle where both the shepherd and the sheep think that this is the way that the flock works, but that's not the way that the flock works. Jeremiah 23 tells us that that's the case. Human sinners cannot lead God's people without eventually eating the sheep. And that's why God sent Jesus. We need a better leader, a righteous leader, a shepherd king who will feed the sheep rather than feed on them. And so, second implication, we don't ignore the shepherds, but we don't confuse the shepherds for the shepherd either. You see, their role is at the best of their ability to model Jesus and to teach Jesus so that we might know Jesus and entrust ourselves to him. And so as I finish, just let me say it again. You will find no better shepherd for your soul than Jesus. So will you trust him? Will you keep trusting him? Will you take your eyes off the other shepherds who you think can save you by their their, their witty repartee or their their brilliant strragy or, or, or whatever it is that attracts you to them and instead put your eyes on the shepherd, the only one who can. That's the message of Jeremiah 23 and I hope that it sinks deep into our hearts because it's a message that we need today in our Christian situation.